Episode 328, an interview specifically for healthcare executives with Marshall Allen, author of the bestseller, Never Pay the First Bill, and other ways to fight the healthcare system and win. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Scientists announce successful experiment to bankrupt mouse that can't afford cancer drug. That's a recent ripped from the headlines of The Onion, which is, by the way, a funny satire newspaper if you haven't heard of it. You could swap out cancer drug in that headline with a trip to the ER or pretty much any aspect of healthcare in this country. No matter what healthcare service you stick in there as the potential cause for a mouse's bankruptcy, it's a pretty LOL headline, right? But the reason why it became a headline is because obviously it's based on a truth that resonates with your regular citizens in this country. Think about that. A critical mass of people around here believe that healthcare will bankrupt you. This is one of those sociological signals that has implications to healthcare leaders. Here's another signal with implications. Today, I'm interviewing the incomparable Marshall Allen. That's not the signal. His book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win, a book with that title being on the New York Times bestseller list, is the signal. Marshall's book is an instruction manual for patients on how to fight back against unfair and or egregiously inaccurate bills. This interview with Marshall Allen is different from others that you may be hearing. Marshall wrote a book to motivate patients, a critical mass of patients, to get empowered relative to their healthcare bills. Because listeners of this show are healthcare executives, I wanted this interview to be relevant to you. What does this book mean for you? Doug Aldean told me one time, unless something has a direct impact on the CEO or leadership team at a health system or insurance co., they're just bored. Let me sum up this interview in one sentence. This is not boring. If you want to skip to the exact examples of not boring, you can skip ahead to about the 30-minute mark. We go through the ways that health systems can and probably will be hurt by the financial toxicity that they create. Here's the three-ish ways that Marshall and I talk about. Number one, doctors who no longer trust their employers, i.e. the health systems they work for, leave. And then you have to recruit new doctors. Hashtag problematic and expensive on a number of levels, but I don't need to tell you that. Number two, reputational damage. When the slogan on the door becomes a joke, that's a problem. Number three, employers and taxpayers reading best-selling books like this one and Marty McCary's, which also is or was just recently on the bestseller list, and learning how to not be basically passive suckers anymore. Marshall's book, by the way, is available wherever books are sold. There are links in the show notes. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Marshall Allen, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. So why don't we just kick it off here? You obviously have a very unique point of view as an investigative reporter. Do you want to just kind of clarify where you're coming from here? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. For the last 15 years, I have been doing deep dive investigative stories 
looking at our system from the point of view of the patient and also the employers who are who are funding the healthcare and also the patients especially are the ones engaging with the system. And so when I look at healthcare stories, I'm looking at how does this affect the people who are paying for it and the people who are undergoing the care? Your audience is a lot of healthcare insiders, and I'm always very aware that my stance is from the outside reporting on how the system's affecting patients. My sources tend to be on the inside because maybe a patient will tell me about a story, I'll be featuring a patient's story, but then it's the insiders who help me understand what's going on so that I don't make any mistakes and also so whatever I report is fair. You know, like ProPublica, especially, we're naming names, right? We're highlighting some form of wrongdoing that's harming the public. But I always want to be very careful that I'm naming, if I name names, I'm naming the right names, right? For that, I depend on the insiders to help guide my reporting. And by the way, those insiders also give me a lot of my best story ideas too. So a lot of my tips come from the insiders. There's a lot of good people working within this very messed up system filled with all of its perverse incentives. Those folks often get frustrated and then they end up coming to me and helping me do my journalism. The binary that you set up is is really interesting, insiders and outsiders. And it's probably a statement in and of itself that patients are considered outsiders in a system that's supposed to be serving them. Right. No, it is. It's unfortunately the way that it's set up. And I, and I think that's one of the biggest problems, right? Like in, in my book, I, I talk about the five reasons why people should fight back. And one of the reasons that I mention is that in the United States, we have this fundamental belief that the customer is always right. And when you're a patient in the healthcare system, you assume that you're the customer because you're the one paying for it through your taxes, through your premiums and your out-of-pocket costs, and you're the one undergoing the care. So you would think that you're the customer in this equation. But, but what's happened in healthcare is that the stakeholders treat each other more as the customer. So the insurance companies are more loyal to the hospitals and the doctors than they are to their own members in a lot of cases. I've helped a lot of patients contest inaccurate or overpriced claims to their insurance company, sometimes blatantly fraudulent, where they say, this did not happen. But then the insurance company will say, well, if it's documented, it it happened, and so we're going to pay for it, and so you're responsible for it. Yeah, I have heard many times the healthcare industry described as the only industry in which one person orders the dinner, someone else pays for it, and a third person eats it. I like that, except I would also argue that ultimately the patient is also the one paying for it. So even the portion that's paid by employers, they're funding employee compensation, but then it's 100% employee compensation that's funding all the healthcare that gets provided through the employer-sponsored plans or out-of-pocket costs for the patient. Yeah, you know what? You're totally right. And, And I think that that's becoming all the more clear even to patients who may not quite understand the full impact, but they certainly understand the impact of their rising deductibles and whether they realize it or not, stagnating wages, which is one of the things that you've talked extensively about. Right. I'm trying to help patients have a better understanding of how even if their plan is paying for it or they see it as their employer is paying for it, it's still that cost gets passed on to them. It just may be passed on to them over time. Yeah, certainly. And as taxpayers, you know, same rules apply. That's right. That's right. (laughs) 
So, you know, your book is rife with all kinds of egregious examples, some of them outright fraud, some of them maybe just egregious <laughs> of our healthcare system doing its its worst <laughs> to patients. But do you want to pick one to talk about? We could talk about any number of, of egregious practices, but let's just talk about one that I see quite a bit, which is upcoding. Where a patient goes in, let's say like a, a young woman I talked to recently who went into an emergency room to get three stitches on her finger. This is a very non-complicated, it was a small slice from her cutting an avocado. The knife went awry. She needed three stitches. That's not a complicated case, but she was billed, you know, emergency room visits can be billed at level one to level five. Level one is the least complicated and therefore it's reimbursed at the lowest rate. Level five is obviously the most complicated. It pays the most. She was billed at a level three emergency room visit. The problem there is that you're not supposed to just put whatever code you want to put because you want to get better revenue. A level three emergency room visit is only supposed to be used when there's moderate complexity in terms of medical decision-making, where there's an extended examination of the patient that's performed. In this case, there was no examination and where there's an extended problem-focused history that's taken of the patient. That was not done in this case. So this was an example of a very simple, non-complex emergency room exam that she received that should have been billed at a level one that was billed at a level three. That type of upcoding is happening all the time. And I don't think anybody is even looking at it. I certainly don't think the big insurance carriers are looking at it because I've documented cases of just absolute egregious fraud that they are very slow to police, very blase about intervening and holding people accountable for. And I'm talking about criminal behavior, not just some upcoding. It really seems like the industry seems to have bypassed discrete upcoding and they're now approaching coding like it's some kind of, you know, as much as you can stuff in your face coding yeah. buffet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there's, you know, and you know, there's, there's software, there's consultants, there's people who actually help guide this process, right? Well, if you could add this diagnosis to it, you could show more complexity to the patient. Are you sure that patient didn't have that diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, and then there's there's readmission penalties and higher reimbursements. There's all kinds of reasons why from a revenue cycle management standpoint, you'd want to, you know, upcode the heck out of it. Yeah, you want to goose it just a little bit, right? Just so that you can maybe have it be believable, but get paid a higher rate. I'll give you another example. And this is the other thing that's so crazy about this is that everybody has experienced this. I once had someone ask me, how does the industry respond to your stories? And I'm like, well, they know it's true. You know, like I'm writing about things that everybody on the inside knows happen all the time. And I don't think it's always something where there's willful intent, like it's criminal. I think it may be that the incentive pushes people that way. I also think there's a lot of chaos in the way the billing system is handled. And so sometimes it might just be mistakes. So I'm not trying to impute criminal behavior here. It, it isn't necessarily criminal, but these are mistakes that get made. And then when you try and correct the mistakes, it's hard to get them corrected. Yeah, indeed. I mean, just to even take it up a notch, because it appears that we're taking it up a notch. There was just a big article the other day about a health system in Virginia who in the ER put a trauma team. So some gentleman came in, again, he needed stitches. They activated the trauma team and charged $52,000 or something like that because all these trauma surgeons ran over. That's incredible. In the book, I also talk about these are schemes that have been created within the industry to increase revenue, even though they're not necessary. 
The healthcare industry, as I've found over the last 15 years, is so driven by profit that it creates these schemes, and some of them are very deceptive and some of them are very dishonest. I've been documenting those over the years, and I include a lot of them in the book, but that's kind of the fundamental starting point for my book, is that this system is not set up for the benefit of the patient. In fact, it is filled with deceptive schemes that are designed to take more money from working Americans than it should. And unless working Americans and employers band together and push back using the strategies I've documented in the book, using other strategies that, are, that people are also putting into place to fight back and win, the industry is not going to stop doing it. On the financial side, the industry is actually oppressing the American people. And until we stand up to the bullies and get savvy about how this industry has been exploiting our sickness for profit, until we do that, it's not going to stop. On that theme, do you believe that a critical mass of patients who are questioning and drilling into their bills force health systems, providers, others to be accountable for what they're doing? Absolutely, I do. Now, the question is, will there ever be an actual army of patients and employees and employers who push back? I think so far this has been untested, but that's what I'm hoping will happen. And that's what I think needs to happen. And if it did happen, I think it would be tremendously effective. So, for example, let's just say that every patient who went to the hospital called the billing department of the hospital and asked for an itemized medical bill. It's something that we should all get. You know, when you go to McDonald's or when you go to the local convenience store, you get an itemized receipt that shows how much each item was that you paid for and how it added up to the total. Hospitals do not do that. So what, what would happen, as I tell people in the book to do, if every patient called the billing department and said, hey, I'm going to need an itemized bill. First of all, it's our right to have an itemized bill. But then we could look up those billing codes We could see if the bill has been priced fairly, we could see if the bill is accurate, and then we could contest those charges. If people started doing that, it would create a lot of labor cost and hassle for that hospital billing department. And I think that the hassle alone and the expense of dealing with all these patients would give the hospital the proper incentive to say, maybe we should just go ahead and give people itemized bills. Now, will that actually happen? I don't really know. I mean, but the way I look at it, there are 155 or so million Americans getting their benefits through their employer right now. And there's another, say, 30 million who are uninsured. If even 1% of that massive population, so let's say 1 to 2 million people, started behaving in this way, where they actually said, you know what, I'm not going to let myself be pushed around anymore by this industry I'm going to start asking questions. I'm going to start demanding answers. I'm not going to accept an inflated price. I'm not going to accept an inaccurate medical bill. I think that 1% alone would create the incentive that's needed to start treating patients and the employers who are funding all of this healthcare. I think that would create the incentive to treat people more fairly. I think it would change the practices that we see that are so egregious. So just to make sure that I'm understanding your advice here, you're basically saying, look, patients, every time you go to the doctor, regardless of whether you get an egregious bill or not, you know, if you are highly healthcare financially literate here, just call up and ask for an itemized bill. Because the more people that do that, the the more somebody's going to scratch their head over in the hospital billing department and go, oh, maybe we should just give this to everybody. It actually would be easier. 
That's correct. And like the title of the book is a provocative title, right? It's called Never Pay the First Bill. Well, I'm not saying never pay your bills. What I'm saying is never pay the first bill until you have gotten an itemized bill and checked it to make sure that it's accurate and to make sure that it's fairly priced. And if it's accurate and fairly priced, then of course, pay your bill, right? I mean, nobody's saying that patients should not be on the hook for the care that they receive. But what I'm saying is we have been expected to pay whatever aggregate sum is thrown at us. And we have been sued for these amounts. I mean, the stories of hospitals suing patients, one in six Americans has medical debt in collections right now. And I think a lot of that is because we have not pushed back. We have not demanded fair prices. We haven't demanded that they itemize medical bills so that we can make sure they're accurate. And patients have been very passive. And and so what I'm trying to show patients and employers is that your passivity, and a lot of it is for good reason, right? I mean, it's not fair that a patient should have to basically practice financial self-defense at a time that they're sick. I mean, this is not a fair situation. They're victims here. But I'm trying to empower and equip the victims to understand the system, understand how the incentives are stacked against them, and then understand the leverage points they have to get the system to treat them in a fair way. Do you want to just give like maybe some top line context here? Because what you said is striking. One in six Americans has medical debt, but yet we don't push back. Why, why are Americans blind to, I mean, you've used the word fraud, you've used the word deviant, you've used the word egregious, right? Like, right. how does this happen? I think it starts with us being trusting of the healthcare system. And we put great trust in doctors and nurses and the other clinicians who take care of us and heal us. But what we don't realize is that on the financial side of the industry, they are glomming onto that trust they're piggybacking on that halo effect that we have with the doctors, the nurses, and other clinicians. Our love for our medical providers who care for us and heal us and who we trust. The financial side of the industry, the middlemen in the industry are glomming onto that trust and using it to exploit us. I believe they violated our trust. I believe they vi- they're violating the trust of the American people when they don't treat us fairly. And they're getting away with it because we trust them because the system is so complicated that it's almost impossible for a layperson to understand. And also because people are sick, they're in a vulnerable position where they're just trying to recover from whatever type of care they needed. They're in a vulnerable position where it's hard to understand. And so in the book, I try and help people see, here's how the system works, okay? Here's how it's set up to exploit you not help you on the financial side. Let's make that our starting point. The prices, the variation in prices is another example of the exploitation of our sickness for profit. Now, when I say variation, there's a high end and there's a low end, right? The people on the low end, let's say low to mid range, they are treating people fairly. They are giving fair prices. But you've got those people on the high end who have figured out whether it's their market domination, you know, where they have a monopoly in a market so they can charge more, Or maybe it's that they're a big brand name medical center, and so they've used marketing and advertising to create this perception of superiority. But they're charging way more than patients need to be paying for the same type of services that patients could get somewhere else for a lot less money. And I think fundamentally that's a a problem for the American healthcare system. I think it's more of a moral problem, though, right? It's, It's totally legal 
to do that. It's just, is it ethical? You know, is it ethical to charge a patient $80,000 for a knee replacement when they could get the same quality knee replacement across town for $20,000? Yeah, and I think this goes just goes back to the question is like, you know, everyone's just got to ha- sit back and ask how much is enough? There's in fact a great quote from Hippocrates, which is everything in excess is opposed to nature. Hmm. He's the Hippocratic Oath guy, the yep. the prenum non nocere, the first do no harm guy. Yep. It seems like we're going back to first principles here. Just because you can charge that amount doesn't mean that it's ethical to do so. Right. I think that's the difference between making a profit and profiteering. Because nobody's saying that the industry shouldn't make a profit. But the issue is that this becomes profiteering when they start extracting as much money as they can from people just because those people are sick and don't have a choice about whether or not they should pay for it. Let me ask you this, Marshall. So in your book, you've got anecdotes involving, I mean, not good anecdotes, (laughs) troubling anecdotes, right? involving billing clerks, PCPs, surgeons, specialists, employer benefit departments, out-of-network ER docs, health systems, insurance carriers, first responders, supply middle people, brokers, all across the board. Do you think that the individuals, I mean, we're not talking about organizations here, which, you know, if you read Dr. Robert Pearl's book, he, he makes a really good case for how immoral organizations, like the place that they can get themselves, right? But if we're talking about individuals, there are individuals who are perpetuating this egregious, deviant, fraudulent, some variation thereof, behavior. Are they thinking? I mean, these are human beings who, some of them went to medical school. Is this perceived as kind of like a victimless crime? You know what I mean? Like, I know you're not able to see into people's heads, so this is inarguably not a fair question. But like, how many, how is it that so many good individuals either drink, you know, so much (laughs) Kool-Aid or feel so powerless to not push back on obvious financial toxicity? Well, they're making a lot of money in a lot of cases. And so it's hard to argue against your own paycheck or the revenue that your company is bringing in. But I'll give you an example. There are a lot of good people also who are working within these companies or within these systems. They don't always know themselves exactly how it all works. You know, the people who work for a big insurance company, they're not all looking at the profit statement and the revenue statement for the company. They're, they're not all examining the massive executive salaries. I mean, certainly a lot of them are not making those massive salaries. A lot of them might also be people who have medical debt in collections. I mean, odds are they are. So a lot of people don't know how it all works. They're part of this giant system. But others, I talked recently to a guy I met at a conference and I, I gave a talk at a conference. It was a health benefits advisors conference. And I saw this guy in the audience and he was nodding his head, nodding his head. And I could see, you know, and my, you know, my, my presentations are, are not, you know, I'm not shy about what I was I'm saying say, You're not here, gentle, right? Marshall. <laughs> I mean, you're not gentle. <laughs> I'm not gentle. I think I'm very, I think I'm exceptionally fair, but I am very clearly on the side of the public that has been being exploited here. And so I'm not gentle about it. I'm very direct, but I'm very fair. I'm basing it on sound reporting. Anyway, this guy is nodding his head rigorously during my presentation. I just noticed him out in the audience. Afterward, I bumped into this guy and I said, hey, I couldn't help but notice you nodding your head while I was talking, I was just curious, was there something I was saying that that resonated with you? And he told me that he had just recently left earlier this year from one of the big blues. And he said he was their top sales guy. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I didn't verify any of this. This is just what he told me. 
But he said he was their top salesperson. And he said, I sat in these meetings and I kept trying to show them how they could save money, how they could do better for the members. And yet he kept running into brick walls, you know? There kept being obstacles put in front of him when he would suggest things that they could do to improve what they were doing until he finally realized that that was not their ultimate goal. That wasn't really what they were trying to do. And at that point then, he came to this moral crisis personally where he realized, I don't think I can continue morally to endorse what I'm doing here. Even though he was a top salesperson making piles of money, he had to leave and go become an independent benefits advisor and do things in a different way. And so I think I think everybody kind of They're in the dark. They don't understand how things work. And then they might come to that point of moral crisis where they have to make a decision for themselves about, is the money I'm making justifying this type of behavior and how it's affecting the public? Well, you know, that juxtaposes really interestingly with, there was an article on Healthcare Dive in May about It talked about both patient trust and physician trust, but it said physician trust in their health system employers declined over 30% during the pandemic. And I'm not sure if it was in that article or other ones, there's been a lot of talk about how there's been an exodus. You know, for the first time, there's more physicians who are leaving hospital employment than trying to get hospital employment. So I think that might you know, hopefully, uh, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but maybe that's a signal that, and maybe if enough physicians leave hospital systems that are doing not cool things, you know, if you're looking at it from a patient standpoint, that the cost of replacing physicians, which is huge, like there is a huge cost in losing physicians and then having to recruit new ones. I mean, maybe that's the whiffum, the what's in it for me for some of these, for health systems to maybe take a hard look, especially if they're interested in the long game, as you said. I think that is a great point. And when you think about this particular gentleman I talked to, now let's say what he told me was true and he is a top salesperson, right? Well, they just lost their top salesperson. And that is a cost for that insurance carrier. Now, enough people... In that case, that's not as bad as losing a physician, right? I mean, it's really interesting that that article that you just mentioned, because of course they're going to be leaving. They have other options. And if you look at the rise, I know you've talked, I listen to your show a lot. I really enjoy it. But you've talked to people who are doing things like direct primary care or creating centers of excellence models. So where you see employers beginning to think outside of the buka box, you're seeing some really innovative, less expensive and higher quality of care options that are being developed. And right now, I would say they're at a very small level. In fact, I've, I've documented this in the book. This is not mainstream stuff, right? This is still at a early adopter level. But it is the concepts have been proven. I mean, when you look at the savings, the better care, the way it can lower an employer's cost and lower the employee's cost and deliver better care, it is working. We are seeing it work all over the country where employers venture out in that way. So I think the what's in it for me, if I'm in one of the big insurance carriers or one of the big hospital systems, they're in the position that my industry, the, the, the newspaper industry, was in, say, 20 years ago. The industry was already on the decline. They did not see the disruption coming. Like when I got into journalism in 01, obviously the internet existed at that point, and newspapers started putting the stories up on websites. The websites for newspapers were derided internally by the old school journalists. 
We didn't take the threat seriously. And next thing we knew, our entire industry was disrupted and decimated. And I think an argument could be made that the healthcare system is in that same precarious position right now. They just are riding high, so they haven't come to grips with it yet. Well, you know, so speaking of online, let me pull a bunch of these threads together. We were talking about physicians losing trust in their employer health systems exiting. But that same study in Healthcare Dive also covered patients and their trust in the healthcare system declined equally precipitously. It was like 32% or something like that, according to that article. I mean, and maybe a good deal of it is the financial issues that we were, were talking about before. I've heard more than once about how patients are scared to death to go to an emergency room or get care for something because they don't want to bankrupt their family. That's right. So this trust and loss of trust in the system can create really some powerful second order effects, which we might be seeing in the amount of dollars that are getting poured into a lot of these point solution online startups. Right. Which effectively take at a certain level, they are designed to pull patients out of traditional healthcare settings and put them into these virtual front door, virtual care settings. It will be interesting to see whether the stars are starting to line, whether there's enough constellation of factors here wherein the traditional healthcare system is actually, you know what they say, unless the CEO and the leadership team can see an immediate consequence, they're just bored. That's right. And our our healthcare system has always been penny wise, pound foolish when it comes to revenue and not investing in the short term for things that will save money in the long term. We're so focused on the short term revenue cycle. And that violation of patient trust is a massive problem. And I think that's also why the stories I do get so much traction. I mean, I'm writing about health insurance, which is about the most boring possible thing you can think about as an investigative reporter. But, but what you find is if you can do the stories in an interesting way and help people understand how the system works and why it's causing them to pay so much money, the stories get tons of traction. They get tons of page views. They get shared all over the place. And we're talking about health insurance. But what you find is that the things that matter most to people are their health and their money. And when they start to connect the dots on how their health is not being improved and their money is being taken from them in unjustified ways. (laughs) When those two things become mutually exclusive. (laughs) Right, that's right. (laughs) They start to connect the dots. And, And now... Again, in my book, I point out we have 20 years of data to look back within working Americans can look back over 20 years and show how their costs have risen year after year without any relenting pause. And the rise is not justified. When you look at the amount of wasted spending, I spent an entire year, 2017, just documenting the wasted healthcare spending. They estimate that up to 25% of all healthcare spending is wasted. Imagine if we just cut out the waste, we could lower everybody's cost by 25%. But the problem is the industry is making its money. That's revenue for the industry. So the industry doesn't want to let that go. And so that's why we're having this, it will be a battle of the titans, right? Because the industry doesn't want to let go of its money, but the employer-sponsored healthcare space actually holds the power because they're the ones that hold the money. And if they ever got smart and said, you know what, why are we spending thousands of dollars for an MRI at a hospital 
when we can spend hundreds of dollars for that same MRI at an independent imaging center. Once they start connecting those dots and wising up, they're going to redirect their dollars. And you already see it happening with the bigger employers or the employers who do like a centers of excellence model, right? Where they go, oh, wait a minute. I see how this works. For knee replacements, you want to charge me whatever you want. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to have a direct contract with this hospital or this doctor group for a fair price. And they're going to be responsible for the cost of any complications that occur as a result, which is going to give them the incentive to improve their quality. And now you have situations where the healthcare, the hospital that's in the direct center of excellence model is actually like sending a car to go pick up the patient and bring them. They're having nurses call them after the fact to make sure that they're recovering well and they're practicing their physical therapy or whatever. So there are better ways to do things and people are discovering them. And there are the good and fair healthcare providers in the system who are eager to enter into these kind of contracts. And so really the bad apples, the people who are exploiting our sickness for profit, the profiteering crowd, the greed crowd, they're going to get shunned. And honestly, they should be shunned until they treat us fairly and they're transparent with their pricing. I mean, let's look again at just the hospital price transparency rule that the federal government now requires hospitals to post their prices online. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you about that. What do you think? I mean, I think it's a great thing, but many hospitals are still not complying. Many hospitals still make it difficult to find that information. You mean they're they're not just cowed by the three hundred dollar fine? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's so intimidating, <laughs> right? And that's and that's where that that fine is obviously minimal. But they comply with the rules and the regulations when they want to. But otherwise, they make it sound like this is just such a baffling thing. How could we possibly do this? What an unbelievable burden. I mean, they're a multi-million or multi-billion dollar healthcare system, but they can't figure out how to put a spreadsheet on their website. I don't buy that. And plus, you look at the hospitals that are doing it. So a starting point would be direct your business to the hospitals that are complying and shun the ones that are not. So I think people need to just stop How many times do you have to have your trust violated before you start to say, oh, I see what's going on here. Okay, I'm not going to keep trusting you. So if we take the lack of trust as kind of the underlying means, let's just say the the first order consequence of of these behaviors, but it's going to be the second order consequences that actually drive change in the industry, right? Because it's those second order consequences when the lack of trust transmogrifies into, you know, some... Well, into some meaningful consequence that the leadership teams of some of these organizations start to realize that they can't keep milking this cow, that, you know, patients are getting, the rest of the country is getting wise to their ways. We've talked about one of them, which is if you have so many doctors and other professionals who work in these organizations who just exit, like that obviously creates a consequence that might light up a CEO's, lift their eyebrows, right? But you know, there's another one, reputational damage. You had a bunch of different examples of where just the threat of Marshall Allen's pen created behavior change. Do you want to talk about that? When you tell the truth about what's going on and the way the hospitals or others are treating patients, they become so ashamed 
and they don't want the public to know it, that they change their behavior. And this is something you see all the time. Like people can look at the Kaiser's Bill of the Month stories. I, I love that series. And I've done these stories myself. But a, a patient can be getting just steamrolled by a hospital billing department or a doctor or a dentist or whatever type of provider it is. They can be being treated so unfairly. They can fight this battle on their own for years getting ripped off, not being listened to. As soon as the journalist calls, that PR department makes it in the incentive for that hospital to correct the behavior, and the behavior can be corrected within minutes. So that when the story comes out, they can say, oh, well, we did correct this problem. Well, it didn't get corrected until, you know, the patient had to go to a reporter and get, and get the reporter to intervene. And I often have found that the system... Some of these hospitals, the way they treat people, they seem to care more about the image of how they look than they do about the reality of how they actually treat people. And I think that's another indication that the patient to them is not their most important customer. So the customer is always right, but the patient isn't actually the customer. Well, sunlight is sometimes considered the best disinfectant. That's right. Well, and it's also interesting that, they, that the second that sunlight arrives they realize or they acknowledge in a way that what they are doing under the cover of darkness may not actually be too copacetic, right? That's right. Again, if done at scale, we could be creating a situation where once again, a leadership team's eyebrows go up because, you know, if the marketing department has to work overtime to overcome all the negative publicity generated by, you know, patients in small claims court taking selfies or something, then I'm assuming just based on the effectiveness of get a journalist involved, that approach is that the potential damaging of the, of the image the pointing out the hypocrisy of whatever slogan is written on the door, that seems like something that leadership teams think is important. I think it is. And I think especially as we're just starting now with some steps toward transparency, like with this hospital price transparency final rule. And as more hospitals come into compliance, we're going to see the price variation in a really stark way. We're going to see the cash prices. We're going to see the Medicare prices. We're going to see the negotiated rates that each insurance carrier has with that hospital for different services. And there are some vendors that are gathering all of this data and cleaning it up, and they're going to make it really easy for people to search. Now, it might need to be an employer-sponsored plan or a benefits advisor who pays for it. They're not doing it for free, typically, and nor should they. They have a right to make a profit on their work, right? But this is going to become more apparent and more exposed just how badly people are being taken advantage of. And that sunlight is going to shine down on, these, on this price variation that's unjustified and I think it is going to cause things to change. I think, it, I think it will help people go to the providers that are treating them fairly and avoid the ones who are not. And the ones who are not, hopefully, might be shamed into some type of change. Yeah, I think you put it very succinctly when you said it's going to be a battle of the titans. And in this case, maybe I'll interpret titans to be a contest between the design of our healthcare system, which is frankly designed to help facilitate the big getting bigger. I mean, right. that's how it works versus all of these grassroots, little tickling problems, issues, people, individuals, organizations who are starting to claw at the, at the knees of these large entities. 
Right. The big giant, though, the sleeping giant is the employers. If the employers woke up and got engaged, they have so much power because they're the ones who really control the flow of all the money in these employer-sponsored plans. Let me interject there, though, because this has been said many times, but one of the issues that these employers have is that their influence tends to be diluted. Like, you know, if you have a giant health system someplace and any given employer in that area has 100 patients, you know, 200 patients, right? I mean, it could be a huge employer with thousands of patients across the country, but in any given geography, their influence could be considered weak. How do you counter that? Again, when they wake up, they're going to have to think about how they can do this in a strategic way. But you see, like in Colorado, employers banding together to create greater a greater force of all of them banded together to demand change. Now, all healthcare is local, so I really think this has to happen at a local level. But if you had employers who gathered together, let's just say in a in a city or in a region, and said, you know what, we're going to start funding direct primary care for our employees in our little location here. Now, this would require a lot of employee education, right? Employees need to understand how their compensation is unjustly being taken from them right now. So they can also be motivated to try something different. But let's just say they did a direct primary care relationship for their employees in one area, and they started their own little clinic. And this is what some of these these health plans do that are doing things a little different way. Well, then not only are your patients getting their primary care paid for at no out-of-pocket expense, but then they can also be directed. Some of these employers are then hiring what they're calling like a benefits champion to help guide and steer the employer employee to the most high value care. They could enter into direct pay relationships with doctors and surgery centers or in hospitals who want to charge them fair prices. It could be done. They just haven't ever tried it. They haven't had the motivation to do it. And I think what I'm trying to do with my book, I have chapters for individuals and chapters for employers. And I'm trying to spur things in the direction where people need to think about this in a different way. We need to reframe the way we analyze this and then stop doing things the same way and start doing things in a more innovative way that's going to protect our money while still delivering the best possible healthcare. Marshall, your book is Never Pay the First Bill. Can people find this book anywhere that books can be found? They can find it anywhere books can be found. And I want to emphasize the subtitle because it's Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. I'm really focused on not just the problem, but it's a how-to guide about what people and employers can do about it. By the book, I read it and I highlighted three quarters of the book. Marshall Allen, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. It's been an honor for me. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.